if you eat densely, move intensely, that is some actionable advice. If you eat nutrient-dense food, this is everything we've talked about. And then the move intensely part is, I, I don't really, I'm not a big believer in this like steady state cardio, like going on hour jogs. I think hiking is awesome. And I would, inc- I, would I would call that intensely, you know, that's like getting out in nature, you're, you're doing an intense activity. I don't think going on a treadmill for an hour is an intense activity. So I like to, you know, throw weights around, do dumbbells, do kettlebells, do sprinting, you know, play a sport. Welcome to the Modern Longevitarian Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Stanfield. I have the privilege and honor to interview some of the most successful people in the fields of human performance and longevity. You can listen to The Modern Longevitarian on your favorite platforms. If you have Apple Podcasts, please do me a favor and subscribe. Also, please stay tuned for an important message from our sponsor, Electrolife. What if almost everything we've been taught about food from major corporations and our government has been a lie? I think the proof's in the prepackaged, sugar-filled, shelf-stable chocolate pudding. It's also shown by how many people are overweight, obese, and the increase in disease. This is a great episode with filmmaker Brian Sanders. He's under production on a new film titled Food Lies. After talking with over 150 experts, Brian tapped into his skills as a mechanical engineer to find the root causes and determined there is a flexible and nutrient-dense way of eating. Brian's solution is a sapien diet. I encourage you to listen, learn, and explore the links in the show notes on modernlongevitarian.com. Now, my interview with Brian Sanders. Brian Sanders, welcome to the Modern Longevitarian Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, let's get into this stuff. Yeah, you know, I've been in the restaurant business, food and beverage industry for 26 years. And um, gosh, I've also uh, gained and lost 40 pounds twice. Mm. And um, I think I've got a close understanding of what food lies are, but I'm definitely wanting to hear what, um, what's going to be on the documentary and what food lies um, are to you. Well, yeah, that's, that's going to cover everything. It's going to probably frame our entire talk. So I guess from the highest level, I mean, there are a list of major food lies, but the, you know, food lies is a concept to me of just everything that we know about nutrition is almost backwards that, we kind of knew everything before in a way, like a lot of times people think that people of the past were primitive or we didn't have a lot of the correct information. And now science has taught us so much, but when it comes to nutrition, it's almost the opposite where we, we kind of knew a lot about nutrition over the generations of trial and error and, you know, these ancestral traditions and so many things kind of lined up in our, ways of eating without us even knowing the science. And then we, it's just funny that we started doing all this more complex science and kind of went astray. So from the, from the highest level, the the food lies are basically what modern nutrition guidelines, modern science has gotten wrong. Right. And then we could, we could break those all down as we go, but that's kind of the general sense. Yeah, there's so many things that uh, that can go wrong. I mean, for a while there was margarine and trans fats, and there's, you know, the American Dietetic Association recommends really high carb and low fat. Um, where you know now the science is showing that lower carb, moderate carb, higher healthy fats is a lot healthier than than those things. And even 
intermittent fasting is, um, mm-hmm. you know, completely opposite of the three square meals plus snacks in between and um, breaking our fast, you know, before we go to work in the morning. And so um, where even the traditional Mediterranean diet uh, is, they, they did a uh, almost like an intermittent fasting protocol where they would have something really light in the morning, a light lunch that they had to carry with them as they were, you know, you know, walking across the, um, of the field is it, you know, going to get the sheep that may have went astray overnight, you know, that type of stuff, which had, you know, hard cheese, hard bread and some milk and a leather pouch that turned into a kefir. And, and then they would have a big family meal at night. So, um, I, I know that you rest somewhere in the lower carb, higher fat scenario, but you're not all the way carnivore and you're not definitely not vegan. So, um, what do you really recommend for people to, to eat? An important message from our sponsor, Electrolife. Today's episode is brought to you by one of my favorite supplements on the entire planet, Magnesium with Immune Boost, made by Electrolife.com. Why magnesium? When it comes to nutrient deficiencies, magnesium ranks at the top of the list. It's right there with iron, iodine, and vitamin D. Just like sodium and potassium, magnesium is an important electrolyte. Electrolytes are needed to balance the water in our bodies, balance our body's pH level, and move nutrients into our cells while moving waste out. If you're keto like me, you truly know the importance of electrolytes and hydration. Believe it or not, magnesium is needed for more than 300 biochemical reactions in the human body. Some people say up to 600. Let me tell you why I trust this specific product made by Electrolife for me and my family. This supplement contains a high-grade magnesium plus potassium and over 60 other minerals that are key to our health. It's produced from the Great Salt Lake. And no, you can't just go over and dip your water bottle in and start drinking lake water. It takes three years from the point of capture to the point that this becomes a consumable supplement. Nowhere else on earth will you find a richer source of minerals and nutrients, and that's the truth. The other reason I love this magnesium is that it's easy to use. Just add it to whatever you're drinking. All you need is two droppers full each day. If you want to get started with one of the best magnesium supplements on the entire planet with an added immune system booster, click on the link in the show notes or go to electrolife.com forward slash shop. That's electrolife with a Y is spelled E L. E-C-T-R-O-L-Y-F-E dot com. And now, back to the show. Yeah, that's a good starting point. Is I do something called a sapien diet. It's just what I view as what a homo sapien should eat. And I've talked to over 150 health experts in the past three years. I've talked, you know, been to conferences. I've talked to the top scientists you can think of all and it was all kind of combined into this idea of a sapien diet and a bigger sapien framework, right? So the sapien diet is, you know, it changes and it's based on, you know, a lot of the goals of who's eating it. And there's a lot of context, right? Of where you're living and all this stuff. Everyone knows you can't just 
make a one size fits all diet. That's sort of like a cliche these days, but uh, there, there is sort of a one size fits all framework that I think humans should eat. And it's what humans have been eating for all of history. And it's based on animal foods and how, you know, these are the pillars of nutrition. This is where the most bioavailable nutrition comes from the most complete proteins and good healthy fats. And it's based on just whole foods, right? About just the each level of processing that you go away from nature makes a food unhealthy. That's kind of one of the biggest themes I've found in all my studies. I like to look at both sides of things. I like to talk to vegans. I like to, you know, hear opposing viewpoints and I you know, try to make sense of what the commonalities are, you know, what do they, what do all good diets have in common and what do all good diets avoid? And a lot of those things line up around food processing and the, the further you go away from nature, like I said, the further it's processed, just each level of processing makes it more unhealthy. And with all the modern foods, they're basically mostly processed and you could even get more into detail of, you know, plant or animal foods and the processing actually, matters it's different and that when you're processing down plant foods you're actually breaking the cell walls of these you know structures the fibers the carbohydrates it that's when it really gets uh, bad for you and it interacts with your gut differently your digestive system and then there's some more nuance with the animal foods where you, you can actually process some animal foods and it it is, doesn't have the same detrimental effects i mean you like people like oh ground beef is so it's processed. We're like, well, not really. I mean, it's still a whole food in my book it, that, and, and you can also look at the biochemistry of that is that when you break down proteins and fats, it doesn't have the same effect to your digestive system as when you break down the plant walls and the cellular walls of the carbohydrates. So really uh, you want to avoid processed foods as much as possible. And so what, what all good diets have in common is they include a strong foundation of animal foods. There's no culture in all of history that was purely plant-based. All cultures relied on animal foods as much as they can. That's a common theme is they, they're, they'd use their environment and use the animal foods as much as possible. And when those weren't around, they had plant foods as more of a fallback food, but they were an important part of our diet. And yes, I'm not carnivore. I am friends with a lot of the big carnivore people in this space and, you know, great people, but I believe there's there's a room for plant foods. I actually just got off a long interview with a woman, an Inuit woman from Greenland, who's a PhD microbiologist who studies this stuff. And she's like, yeah, I mean, it's very animal-based, like 98% animal foods, or most of the year it's 100% animal foods, but there's a very important part of their diet would be you know, even the contents of the stomach of, of herbivores, right? They would eat the, the caribou, they were, you know, fermenting plant matter in the stomach and they'd eat that or, you know, certain little roots or berries in a few months of the year when they're available. So, uh, so, we're, so yes, I'll, I'll recap the sapien diet. It's kind of sapien framework. It's, it's a strong foundation of animal foods where you're getting the bulk of your nutrition. That's where all the good nutrition's from, whole foods as much as possible and don't always be eating. Don't always be eating, which means, like you said, intermittent fasting, people call it condensed eating window, all this kind of the idea that we should be eating all of the time to keep our metabolism up is complete fairy tale, false, disproven notion. It's almost what I'd say is one of the biggest problems. Like what, where, do, how do we get into this mess we're in now? 
people are probably well aware we're in a obesity and chronic disease epidemic. We have 88% of people in America not metabolically well. That's a new study, you know, showing this. And I think it's because of just these sugar refined grains and vegetable oils, these three processed foods and eating all the time. It's as simple as that. If we're, if we're eating, snacking, this this constant eating and then these three sort of just really bad foods and those foods, uh, well, I'm talking about commonalities, right? What's the different, what would all good diets avoid and all good diets avoid those three foods. So that's kind of the whole sapien ideals, you know, sapien uh, just worlds right there that in a nutshell. That's, that's a, that's a really cool nutshell. I, and what I want to get at is um, there's so many things that we have lost over the years. And when you look at ancestor, ancestral eating, you know, it's, there's a lack of organ meats in our diet. Um, I remember my great grandmother eating liver and onions and liverwurst and, and those things. And here recently over the last a couple of years, we've added beef heart, some grass-finished beef heart into our diet. On occasion, this only happened a couple of times. It's not a regular rotation for us. And, and I, so I understand what you're saying is that, you know, diets are more of what not to eat. And we have an endless supply of calories at our fingertips. You can just reach out through the drive through or you can park in the front stall of a grocery store you can go in or is there snacks at work and it's just there's no framework in our society about you know limiting the number the number of carbs or fat or protein or you know calories for that matter and so it makes perfect sense it's so true uh but it's okay there's a we're at a war we're at a there's a constant battle because we're in this modern time where all these foods are available. So it's hard to resist them. And then there's other dietary philosophies that they're like, Oh, you, you have to not avoid any food. You're going to have an eating disorder. If you start avoiding carbs or if you stop, you, you don't, if you skip breakfast, that's an eating disorder. And it's, it's so insane how backwards they have it where we live in such a time of abundance that it's so hard to not, eat all the time and to avoid all these foods when you're being marketed them or out of convenience or out of taste. So it's, yeah, it's pretty simple. If you just find a way to yeah ch- change your dietary habits, change your uh, habit, yeah, just your views on food and, and then and, and change your food choices, you can just do a lot better by, by making some simple adjustments. Right. And you know, I, well, when I was a kid, I never wanted to eat breakfast. And my parents, you know, kind of strong-armed me into mm. to eating breakfast. And I finally gave in as a teenager. And, and I guess I was hungrier then because, you know, as a teenager, you can eat a lot more than what you normally do because you're growing so much. And, um, and, and then when I got older and in the restaurant business and was overweight, um, the second time, 40 pounds overweight, was actually working at a hospital and was 40 years old. And I was, I read the warrior diet, which is basically the 20 hour underfeeding stage and the four hour, you know, overfeeding stage and, or the 24, what we now call one meal a day. And um, it gave me permission to skip breakfast and go to my natural eating cycle. So to say that I have an eating disorder 
now because I skipped breakfast would be absurd because I'm actually fitting more into what my body, uh, uh, the natural rhythms of my body. You know, I'm just I'm more of a late night person. I eat, I like eating dinner. You know, I, I don't, I love breakfast foods. Get me, don't get me wrong, but mm-hmm. I, I'd much rather, um, you know, just get into my day with a cup of coffee and, and, uh, and keep, keep moving from there and then have a late lunch and have dinner with the family and, and that, and that's it. Well, that the eating disorder is eating all the time, right? You're talking about a more ancestral approach. I keep using this term because I, I really, we get into this whole history of human evolution and how we evolved and foods and all this in the film. And we can talk about that stuff too, but this is what humans did. We didn't obviously have the refrigerator and the fast food in the grocery store. We woke up and had to go get the food. Our bodies are very well adapted. They're designed to go long periods without food. We're designed to run on fat. I forgot to mention that in the Sapien diet is, is embrace run on fat, right? Fat is our fuel source. We humans work with batteries, but the fuel source of fat is perfect. It's a perfect system where you store your energy on your body as fat and then you use it. You don't always have access to carbohydrates or, or glucose for energy, right? So it, like now we can do it. It's almost this modern convenience thing that we, we developed this idea that we need to run on glucose because we have all this abundance of carbs and cheap corn, wheat, and soy and government subsidies and all this type of stuff. So like, oh yeah, glucose, our body burns glucose quickly. But that's almost the reason why it's, we know it's not our preferred fuel source is because it has to get rid of it because it's poison. It burns it quickly and it has nowhere to store it. And it, you know, it, can, it tries to store it as fat. But, but fat is our preferred fuel source because we can store tens of thousands of calories of fat on our body. Even a thin person, there's some statistic like you could you know, walk from Florida to New York on your own body fat and have all the energy you need. You know, if, I mean, you arrive pretty skinny, but that, you know, that, that's how the body works. And that's what I'm talking about with this ancestral approach and that what you're saying of skipping breakfast is not skipping anything. It's normal. This is the normal habits of humans. We, we had plenty of energy to go out and get food. I, I heard another cool kind of concept is it wouldn't make sense to be Okay, you know, a lot of people eating the bad modern diets, they're so tired and if they don't eat and they get cranky and hangry and they get low energy and they have to take a nap after lunch, this is from dependence on glucose as a fuel. So, you know, dependence on carbs as a fuel source. That is the opposite of how human evolution would have worked because if we got more tired when you needed energy the most, that wouldn't make sense, Right. But what makes sense is people who are fat adapted. Everyone knows about the keto diet these days. If you if you're running on fat, it's the opposite. You almost get more uh, turned on mentally, right? You get more mentally acute when when you're running on ketones and you're fasting. And and you know, you know, at the end of a long, you're doing a 20 hour fast. Or you do OMAD, like you said, one meal a day. You're, you're firing on all cylinders. Your brain's working well. Like you feel great, and that's evolutionarily appropriate. It makes sense because your body's like. You know, I, I didn't, I can go without eating for long periods of time, but now it's time to go get some food and I'm ready. I have lots of energy. I did a decathlon. I did 10 of, you know what I mean? I, I, I did like a 10 event on, on fat, on no carbs. I didn't even eat. I did a pentathlon in a big competition in Canada and I didn't even eat that day. 
everyone else is there, you know, doing all the energy drinks and energy bars. I didn't even eat. I had a little bit of liver at one point. I just ate some grass fed liver, like a little bite of raw liver, just like as a goof almost, but that's how humans are meant to be. Yeah. I, I, I a hundred percent agree. Just uh Saturday I went on a, uh, over two mile hike. And again, I'm in the mountains in Utah and it's, about a thousand foot elevation change from the bottom to the top of the mountain. And then you have to come back down. And I did this hike at seven o'clock at night between seven and eight thirty, And I had two calories that day, which is a cup of coffee in the morning. And so at eight o'clock in the morning, I had a cup of coffee. I had water mm-hmm. throughout the day. Um, nothing else. I think I had a B12 vitamin. That's all I mm-hmm. had in the morning. And uh, I I felt fine. I felt perfectly fine. I came home, we had dinner, and it was like no different than um, than you would even expect it to happen. So when you say it's natural, it's the way it's designed to be. I hear you. I feel it. And when you're on when you when you are on ketones or when you're in deep ketosis, as I say, you are just on. You're buzzing. You're feeling great. Your brain's on fire. You're hitting on all cylinders. And uh, you're in high gear and you can just go forever, go forever. And, um, I, you know, one of the things I want to talk about, you know, when I was 40 pounds overweight, one of the things that motivated me is I actually took the old formula of 3,500 calories equals a pound of fat and multiplied that times 40. That's 140,000 extra calories I was carrying on my body. Mm-hmm. And you divide that by wow, 2,000 yeah. calories a day, I can go 70 days. Right. With, yeah. Without eating, right. You know, and even, you know, Dr. Jason Fung's book, The Complete Guide to Fasting, says your metabolism speeds up when you're fasting after about 24 hours to give you a boost of energy to go find more food, especially when you're fat adapted and all those things start start happening. And, you know, even let's say 170 pounds at, you know, 10 percent body fat. Right. You've got 17 pounds of body fat that can convert if you're fat adapted, can convert into a fuel. And you divide that by 2,000, you can go a couple of weeks without actually, before you get down to zero, we don't want, we don't want to do that. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. Hypothetically speaking, there's a lot of energy stored on our bodies, even for people who are, you know, in single digits, you know, in body fat percentage. And so it's, people just don't really understand the concept of how much, you know, energy we have stored and how efficient a body can be in a fasted state and also when it, once it's fat adapted. And I'm up on my high horse. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I just wanted to tell you one of those things that helped me. Well, no, I totally agree. And I know many doctors, including, yeah, Jason Fung, for sure. He's, you know, the fasting man himself. That fasting or just even just periods of not eating is the most powerful medical intervention they've ever used. So just, just imagine that out of all the, you know, drugs they use. I mean, I know many doctors. I have a business partner who's a doctor. And, and he he agrees. He's he's just periods of not eating is more powerful than basically any other intervention out there. And you know, we're trying to get people off of medications. You know, like it's and it's amazing what you can do when you're you're not eating. And then some people may be confused with fasting because it sounds like it's they they get it confused with maybe being anorexic, right? And that it's completely different. So. You, there, you can use fasting as a person like you or I, who is in you know, good shape. We don't need to lose weight. We are eating the same amount of calories, 
per day, we're just eating them in a smaller window or over the course of the week. You know, it's not like we are like people who are anorexic are restricting calories. They're eating the wrong foods in the, in the constant caloric restriction. So we're not talking about being in a constant caloric restriction unless you're trying to lose weight, which is fine. Then it's a great tool for losing weight, but, and then you can still be full. You can still function properly in a caloric restriction if you eat the correct food and then do some of this fasting we're talking about. But I'm just saying in general, we're not talking about being anorexic. We're not talking about deprivation. We're eating amazing giant meals when we're eating and when we're not eating, we're not eating, right? It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's just a different way to live and it provides tons of benefits. There's something called autophagy where your body gets to rest and digest and repair itself. It's cellular cleanup. It's these times of not eating are very beneficial, especially if you go into these longer fasts and Jason Funk gets into all, you know, the different benefits of the, you know, these extended fasts and all this stuff with autophagy. But yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there that it's, it's not anorexia and it's about what you eat is very important. So I'm really into satiety, right? Which is being full. So how do you fast? Well, how do you do your condensed eating window and only one meal a day? Cause that seems impossible to many people who are used to snacking on trash all day. Well, if you're eating the right foods, if you're getting a good complete proteins and animal fats, you know, you're eating, you know, the correct foods and ancestrally appropriate diet, you're eating fish and eggs and meat and uh, you know, raw dairy and just certain low carb vegetables. I mean, you're full, you're completely fine for long periods of time. And so it's not hard. It's not hard at all. So my next question, because you started out with the sapien diet is a foundation of, you know, clean, you know, animal based products. What do you recommend for vegans? Well, I recommend eating oysters for vegans. I don't recommend being vegan. Um, I, out of all the diets, I think you can be healthy on almost any diet. I just don't personally believe in, you know, all the doctors that I associate with don't believe in 100% vegan diets. But that's, I mean, if you could get away with it, I mean, I would supplement a lot with, there's so many things you'd be lacking with the, you know, B12, you mentioned of. Uh, uh, iron and different vitamins like K2 and vitamin A, like there's different vitamin, there's different forms of vitamins. And a lot of these forms aren't present in plant foods. So they have their precursors. So the vitamin K is an example of the plant foods have vitamin K1, but animal foods have vitamin K2. Right. And you want to get the full, you know, K2 form from animal foods. So really, I mean, I, I know some people that eat a plant-based diet, but they avoid sugars and refined grains and vegetable oils. And then they eat oysters once a week, right? And they, they love oysters. They love the, to, you know, not harm animals, right? They're into this whole philosophy of vegan, which is great, right? Let's not do, I don't like industrial agriculture in any form, whether it be plant or animal, and we should be respecting the environment, respecting animals. But I think, if you uh, eat oysters, which they, you know they're a bivalve, they have no central nervous system. You can find some you know sustainably grown oysters. They don't have feelings. They don't have a central nervous system, and they have tons of B12 and iron and iodine and all these different things that you're not going to get from plant foods. So that's what I would say to a vegan is 
uh, eat some oysters and then maybe uh, learn more about regenerative agriculture, which is another thing the film goes into, which is you can eat regeneratively sourced meat and the, you know, grass fed cows, lamb, whatever, that they can actually benefit the environment. These animals, you know, eating their native diets of just different grasses and they're getting, you know, rain water to feed the grass and sun and it's a perfect system. And it actually uh, would kill less animals if you would eat just regeneratively grown meat, you know, from your local farm, if, especially if it's nearby. I mean, many vegan diets have to rely on things shipped in from all over the world. They have to rely on monocropped foods that destroy ecosystems and have a lot of deaths associated with them with other ways and impacts on the environment and, you know, tons of different smaller species of animals get killed in the process of growing them, whether by the pesticides or whether by getting chopped up in the combines and harvests or whether starving at the end of the harvest when they're relying on all the foods that were grown there and now they're all of a sudden gone. So that's another one I didn't even think about until recently. I started talking to some farmers that the, many of these animals are just starving to death because they, they come to get all the corn and then they take the corn away and then they they just die. They they have no food, and it's this miserable death. So, it's, do you want to eat a cow that had a, a good life eating its native, you know, its ancestrally appropriate, its species appropriate diet of grass, and then one day it was, you know, got a bolt to the head in a, a humane way where it didn't even know what happened, or do you want to have tons of animals starving to death because you you know they were relying on these d different plant source food systems and industry. Yeah. Yeah. We don't want to do any harm to animals. I mean, you know, my, my wife was a vegetarian for gosh, it's 25, you know, years before she had any animal based products again. And um, I was a total of 10 years where we were pescatarian. We were doing some oysters, doing fish, those type mm -hmm. of things. And um, for me, I was started on this trail because both my parents got cancer in their fifties. And um, then we stumbled across through all this search to try to find out what was best for us and our family. You know, the, the research and the information of um, Dr. Weston A. Price. And I know he's, his work from what 90 years ago now has a big influence on what you believe and what you practice. Can you uh, talk about that a little bit? Sure. He is a great scientist. So he actually started out pretty vegetarian himself, which is interesting. So he's a dentist in Ohio. He, yeah, he's around in the twenties, thirties, went around the world and he wanted to study why did, why do people's teeth fall out? You know, this isn't ancestrally appropriate. This doesn't make sense for species to eat and then just lose the thing that helps them eat. So he went around the world and found all these native living people that had amazing teeth. They had wide jaws. They didn't have dentists. You know, they, they didn't have tooth extract. I had four teeth, four teeth removed and braces to try to fit my messed up teeth and make them straight. These people had none of that. He went all over the world and found wide jaws, wide dental arches, no cavities, all this stuff. And he, he went to Melanesia. He went to the top of the Swiss Alps. He went to Africa. Australia. He went everywhere and he found these common themes that really I, I based the sapien diet on really, right? It's, it's his, what he found was they weren't eating sugar, refined grains or vegetable oils. 
And when they did start eating these, right, if there was trade, there's like once the modern trade came in, there's a port town that got, you know, they, they exported some of their foods, their natural foods for these sacks of flour and sacks of sugar and grain. And they got unhealthy. And he did some good experiments. He did small experiments. He did epidemiology. He did observation. He did all kinds of stuff and kind of saw that even between generations, even where the older brother was eating the, the native foods and say the younger brother started eating the processed imported foods and the younger brother's health fell apart and got sick, got, had more cavities, had messed up teeth, had even tuberculosis, had all that was you know, more prone to different diseases, had a worse immune system, so many things. And it was all just based on the diet. And it's, he actually thought of it as displacement foods. It's a great way to think about it is these, these poor quality nutrition foods like sugar refined grains and oils displaced the native animal foods and the, the native diets that with all the nutrition. He also even brought back some of these native foods and tested them in the lab and found out that it was something like 10 to 20 times more nutrient dense, more nutrients in all of these foods than in say a diet that was a modern diet of, you know, say like bread and jam and, you know, whatever else, uh, you know, like what well, chicken or something, just these people were eating oysters and fish eggs and liver and, you know, grass fed dairy and all this good stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's, he, he's, I love him. I love his work. They, there's a foundation that, you know, keeps his uh, science alive, talks about the diet and, and yeah, they say they, they just, they all, all these cultures also based their nutrition on nutrient dense animal foods, especially around pregnancy. I love that part too, is these very diverse groups of people, right. That obviously have never contacted each other. He was like, you know, in the island in the middle of nowhere. And then he was up in the Swiss Alps. He's in Ireland. He's all over the world in the thirties. People didn't contact each other, but they had the same traditions around pregnancy, especially. So they would feed, you know, the, the mother and, and the father, even they even had this idea of getting, getting the dad preconception to have a good diet. And it would all be based on the most nutrient dense animal foods. And so that was really interesting to me. So what are the, the, the most nutritious animal foods? Yeah. So the, the real nutrient dense animal foods are the organs. So all the, the bone marrow. So what they found is that the, they would eat the whole, the whole animal, right? They'd eat the offal, right? Those are all the organs. They'd eat the bone marrow. They'd eat the brains even. They'd eat the eggs. So either just any kind of eggs, chicken eggs, goose eggs, or fish eggs, very nutrient dense and grass fed uh, dairy, especially when, you know, there's people, native people even knew to eat it at certain times and they would, they would wait to get pregnant around the time when the grass was the greenest and freshest and the cows were the fattest and eating, you know, the, the, the best grass. And then they would get the dairy and make the butter and make the fermented cheese, the raw dairy and the raw cheeses from that, you know, and it was yellow, right? It wasn't this white, like this was some yellow, but I've seen it made by some people and it's, it is delicious. It is nutritious. It's, it's got all these extra nutrients and, and you can see it in the yellowness of it. But so yeah, it was the animal foods. It was basically the animal foods. It was not the plant foods. We just have this idea that that superfoods, that this quote superfoods you hear about these days in modern, basically marketing world 
are acai berries and like kale and like these, you know, quinoa. I mean, these are kind of like marketing gimmicks. Like, I, actually, I don't think there's anything wrong with kale. Maybe, I mean, egg does have a lot of oxalates. And if you eat a lot of it, you could have problems. There are some anti-nutrients in plants, which we can get into as well. But uh, the, the real, the real superfoods are the ones I listed, the, the organs and the fat and the dairy and the eggs and the fish and the cod liver and that type of stuff, cod liver oil, like all that stuff. Yeah, that, that goes back in, in eating in an old world way is, um, as you said, you know, extremely dense in nutrition. And, um, you, and when you eat that way, you actually are satisfied with less food. You don't have to eat as much food. You don't have to eat as often because your body isn't craving anything, which is, which is what we found in, in our practice, you know, practice of living the best life that we can. Um, well, let's talk about, you know, because Weston Price found some things, um, too, that you have to do to, um, to I guess, mitigate the things that are in mm -hmm. the plants, right? So soaking grains and different types of things. So if you can talk about that some. Sure, yeah. So this kind of goes into the anti-nutrient discussion. So plants have anti-nutrients. These are these natural defenses. They can't run away like an animal can. And they have these sort of just natural pesticides almost natural toxins in them so animals don't want to eat them and they store them in places like the leaves and the seeds and stuff like that so i mean many seeds are poisonous if you eat the wrong seed you could die and many things are poisonous like certain potatoes if you eat a raw potato you could die if you eat raw beans you're going to get sick so there you need to soak beans and you need to ferment certain things to make to, to one get rid of the anti-nutrients and make the nutrients more bioavailable. So that's what these soaking, sprouting, uh, all those type of behaviors just open up the nutrients and get rid of some of the anti-nutrients. So that it makes the nutrients more bioavailable. And ancient people figured this out it's all across the world. Uh, there's a great guy named Dr. Bill Schindler, who I had on my podcast twice, actually, who went around the world studying this. And he's very into Weston Price and he's, he's very into these ancient traditional preparation techniques and uh, it, it's it makes all the difference and the the part of the problem today and his kind of view well he's very on the same page but his kind of lens he sees it through is that we're just we're eating supposedly the same foods like in quotes but they're completely different because the preparation is all that matters right you could eat you'd say cheese is completely different if you're eating a craft single from Safeway and you're eating like a real cheese like they do in France or they do in other traditional countries though. It's, it's not pasteurized. It's, you know, it's raw. They're using just one ingredient. They're just using, you know, some renin, they're using this uh, enzyme that helps ferment it and salt. And that's, and that's all it is. And it's a completely different food. Like one, you know, is potentially bad for you like these fake cheeses. And one is a very nutrient dense, you know, real superfood. So it's the same thing with bread. You can eat a traditional fermented sourdough that is, you know, you let it sit overnight and you do its thing. It ferments. It gets rid of a lot of the bad things and gets rid of a lot of the gluten even and all the, all these things. And it can be perfectly healthy. Or you can eat a fake sourdough bread that you get in the store and it's, it's not fermented at all. It's just, he, he knows because he's a food scientist. He's great. He's, a, he's an anthropologist and food scientist and archaeologist. He does all these things. He's an active professor in Maryland. And 
he said, well, yeah, if you look in the package, it uses flavoring, like it uses sourdough. Fl- like, plus it's in, you know, because of the modern techniques, it's all about fast, right? Let's, let, you're not going to slow ferment the sourdough. You, you can't make any money off that. These factories just pump through it and they use fake flavorings and that's what people are eating. So there's, there's an overview there of that. Yeah, it's, you know, when, when you look at cheese, there's, there's, I think there's three levels of cheese, really. Um, there is, and going back to that, because that's one of my favorite food groups, I think, is, mm-hmm. is, is that, you know, there's the fake cheese, right, which is the Kraft Singles. Then there is the homogenized, pasteurized cheese. There may be um, a, a non-organic cheddar cheese or Monterey Jack or Mexican blend or Fiesta blend that you see hanging on the rack. And then there is what I consider real cheese, which would be a raw cheese, a raw dairy cheese that is is basically the maker, the cheese maker is doing everything they can to keep from getting in the way of what um, the dairy is, is designed to do. And, and what most people don't realize is that, you know, obviously pasteurization and homogenization were, you know, things that we needed to do at some point to preserve food, but making cheese actually preserves the milk so you can take it into the winter, the fall and winter months. And that's actually a process of preserving um, the dairy. And so is butter, right? This is just another way of doing that. And, um, And so when you actually taste side by side a raw cheese versus something that's been pasteurized or highly processed they're like you said they're not only taste different the taste profiles are different um but they're also um the nutrition is completely different as well and and i'm a huge fan of real food i've been around chefs all my adult life and um i've been you know blessed with a a wife that is a better cook than than most of the chefs I've been with <laughs> over time and um, we love, we're foodies and we love food. And when you actually are eating this way, the food actually tastes better. And you could go order a charcuterie board at your local restaurant, or you can make one at home for the same price but with better ingredients and it'd be healthier for you and taste better. I love that. Yeah. And, and uh, this kind of reminds me of, Take of all their cultures, I mentioned France, for example. So people, they call it the French paradox. It's like, why are these people so healthy, but they're eating supposedly bad foods? So for one, that, that leads to the saturated fat discussion. So we, we called it the French paradox because they ate a lot of saturated fat. And now actually in the six days ago, there was a great new study that, that said we were wrong about saturated fat. So finally, they finally kind of like really came out. Yeah, it's a big day for us in the world, saturated fat has been exonerated it's like we they they now say we have no research that says that we need to limit saturated fat so it's it's great they re-looked at the studies and so that was a big win so for one it's not a paradox so because they eat saturated fat that's healthy that's not a bad thing right so that's part of the french paradox but another part of it is people in especially in the like kind of lower carb like higher fat world they're like oh how do how do french eat bread or how do they you know how are they they still live along how they're healthy and there's many things going on as part of the, their culture too. But also it's because they're eating the natural real versions of those foods. So if they're eating the real bread, they're eating the sourdough that's fermented overnight and they're doing the raw good cheeses and dairy. And then, you know, they're drinking their wine from their country that's raised 
well, grown the, the proper way without, you know, added sugars and sulfites and all this weird stuff, you know, that American wines have. So if you're eating food in the correct way, you can almost eat any type of food, right? But in, it kind of goes back to what we're saying in the beginning is we're, we live in such abundance now, we kind of have to create restrictions, right? Because it's like uh, you go, some people go low fat, some people go low carb, some, you know, we have to create these restrictions because of this modern environment we live in. But I guess some, the French restriction is that maybe they'll eat carbs and fat, but their restriction is they do it right. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. and they, they won't eat in excess and they, they're, they're not, you know, stuffing their face with McDonald's and ice cream and they're not, they're eating the real versions of the food and they're, they're not eat Yeah. So. Right. There, there's, there's a couple things to that. One is um, that there's a national law in France that you can't work more than 40 hours. So their work life balance is so much different than what an Americans can be if you're working a 50, 60 hour week. And so their movement level is a lot higher. They um, experience community in an old world way, no pun intended. Their wine is designed to be consumed with food and um, which is, you know, where American wines are, are made to, to, to not be as dry. And so people have a tendency to drink um, wine that is not with food and, and, and probably overconsume some. And, um, and then there's a book you may have heard of it. And it was, I don't, I think it was probably about 10 years ago. It came out as called French women don't get fat. Mm-hmm. Um I used to tell people that uh, um, how do you work in when they I get asked the question how do you work in this restaurant and I weigh 300 pounds, and I would say because I eat like a French woman and then the, obviously they would look at me kind of crazy and I was like I eat a little bit of everything I don't ever overindulge on one thing and yeah somebody's got to try the cheesecake to make sure that it's cooked the right way and you have to cut it in the middle to make sure that it's not underdone and why not have a taste of it right when you're there right and that was before I was keto. So I was telling that joke about four and a half years ago to five and a half years ago. Um, but I, I didn't get a chance to say that because when I went low carb, because I wasn't eating the cheesecake. Unless mm-hmm. my wife and daughter made me a ketogenic version of it with um, a macadamia nut crust and, you know, using different type of sweeteners and, and those type of things. Um, but let's transition into the movie food lies and, and because um, I know you, um, your professional life, you went to school, you're a mechanical engineer, and now since we're talking about um, food and diets, and um, you're one of the few people I think have researched diets as much as I have, I feel like, mm-hmm. and you're probably more than me, to be honest with you, because I've been working a lot, but um, my point being is, how do you get from being an engineer to making food lies? Yeah, well, I didn't expect this to happen. And uh, I think my background really helped me. So yes, I was a mechanical engineer. I worked in engineering for a while, then I actually got into tech and you know, worked in tech. And But having this background of critical thinking, scientific method, root cause, right? As an engineer, you, you kind of look at what, what's the root cause of the problem. And actually it kind of goes against this modern medicine right now is sick care, right? They call it healthcare. It's really sick care. It's, they don't look at the root cause of problem. They look at what pill they're going to prescribe you. And they, you know, it's just, that's a whole nother topic. And, you know, you should probably have a doctor come on and talk about that <laughs> who, who knows it well, but it's the wrong way to do things. It's treating the problem instead of looking at the root cause. Right. And then it, the root cause is always diet and lifestyle. And so, I 
I actually think that helped me as well because I, uh, so many people who come from the healthcare system, they're entrenched in their beliefs, right? And they think saturated fat is bad and they think cholesterol is bad. So me kind of coming from the outside kind of helped where I didn't have these preconceived notions and got to just look at things from an outside perspective. And so that's part of it. Part of it is just my own health journey. You know, I, I got turned on to the sort of paleo type of eating and that type of thing, a, a, like, you know, six years ago and it, and it changed my life. And then also my parents. So I, you mentioned your parents. Yeah, I lost both of my parents. I was about 30 when this happened. That's when I started getting into this stuff. And, and they followed the food pyramid. You know, they were doing it. We weren't eating out. You know, we were cooking all our own foods. We were following the advice. I grew up in Hawaii. We were eating, you know, rice you know, chicken, vegetables, like, you know, fruits and, you know, sort of like pasta and just all the stuff that they told us to, you know, drinking juice in the morning and drinking low fat milk and all the things that we're supposed to. And I ended up just not in optimal shape by the time I was 30. And my parents got these chronic diseases that our ancestors didn't get. And so I, I, really, you know, that obviously woke me up and I got really into nutrition. And actually, we mentioned what the health uh, before we went on air. That that got me. So that was about three years ago, the summer, three years ago, I watched that film. I was like, this is wrong. This is the exact opposite of what the, the real story is on nutrition. And I need to I need to make a film showing the opposite because I actually got into film around then. I re-got into film. I grew up in film. I, mm-hmm. I thought I was going to go to film school. I was, make, I was a kid, you know, running around school, making all the movies and all my class projects were the, the movie projects. And, and I actually teamed back up with a guy I grew up with in Hawaii who's an amazing filmmaker, director, who started with me. <laughs> me and him were the two people doing it. He went to film school, did his thing, and then we met back around <laughs> and are making food lives together. So that's kind of my story. And we're, you know, very, very into it. He lost his dad actually to cancer. He's been eating this way for even longer than me, probably seven, seven, eight years. And we're, yeah, really dedicated to kind of getting this sort of correct information out there, or at least looking at all sides too. You know, I don't always think I'm correct in everything, but I want to look at all sides of it and kind of get a more, balanced perspective on things. Yeah, that's how I am. I'm, um, I look at root causes and I think that's how it's a solution-based operating system that I've used over the years. Uh, and it's interesting because we both, I think, ended up, or, and a lot of people are ending up this way, that there's no one-size-fits-all type of scenario anymore. So, you know, in your sapien framework, you have people who can be more on the vegetarian side, but you have people who can also be more on the carnivore side. And and I think that has a lot to do with genetics or genetic expression, you know, those type of things. I saw um, a doctor that was on um, a pod, uh, podcast, Impact Theory, talked about mm-hmm. he had his DNA tested. He had 90, his uh, Cro-Magnon DNA was 97% more, or excuse me, his Cro-Magnon DNA was more than 97% of the population. And he switched to our carnivore diet, and he actually started uh, feeling better and mm. lost lost some weight and started everything was better. Where when you see somebody who's eating bacon and or as Dr. Sean Baker, I saw one of the YouTube videos, I had two pounds of In-N-Out burgers 
post workout, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe that's how his DNA plans out, where somebody else's DNA is a little bit different. And having, um, you know, a straight carnivore diet might not be the best thing for them. And so maybe if you can expand on, you know, how this, where everything's more customization, but yet there's a foundation within within that that kind of rides in the middle about what these are the things we have. So, um, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, humans are super diverse. We know that there's so many different ecosystems and climates and t- even times of history that humans lived through and that shaped what we ate. And so, yeah, if someone is from Southeast Asia and they're by the equator and they're living on, you know, the fruits and vegetables that are around them and fish, then I don't think I would promote a, a all bacon and meat diet like Sean Baker. Right. Like, you know, it's like, okay, well let's, maybe we can do less of the sugary fruit and more of the fish. And, you know, if they needed to, you know, lose some weight or get metabolically healthy. So, it, yeah, there, there's always a context of where the person's from, their genetics, their background, what they're used to. And again, I'll, I'll talk about the, the Greenland, the scientist woman I interviewed today. She's fighting against these, these universal guidelines. This plant-based movement is coming into her, you know, these native people and saying, we need to be plant-based. This is like animal-based food is not good. And they're like, what are you talking about? We've lived our entire existence on these animal foods. And you're going to tell me you're going to ship in some grains and fruits and all this stuff from, you know, across the world. And we're supposed to be healthy on that. It's the opposite. The people eating the, the imported foods are stricken with diabetes and obesity, right? It's, it's skyrocketing. And we know this. We've seen this throughout history. Native Americans starting to eat these foods are, have a huge problem with diabetes all across the world, even in India, there's a huge problem with type two diabetes. And even if they're not obese, they can still be metabolically damaged because they're eating the wrong food. And yeah, so it is about genetics. It is about where you're from and your heritage and history, but there kind of is, is a sort of universal theme of, I guess, everything I already said about the, the processing, right? So it's like the Indian people, are going away from their native Indian foods and they're eating more and more of the breads and the, the sugars and the vegetable oils. And so no matter what style of food you're eating, the processing really matters. And, and we haven't hit on vegetable oils much, but that is a highly processed bad food. It's very high in these polyunsaturated fats, these omega-6 fats. It's, it's, they're not natural. They have this great sounding name of vegetable oil. It sounds healthy but it's not. These are industrial seed oils and they are a huge problem. So <laughs> there's that. Yeah. What oils do you recommend? So I don't use many oils at all. I use animal fats mostly, but if you want to use oils, you would use fruit oils. So these are maybe not known to you as fruits, but an olive is a fruit and you know, a coconut is a fruit and an avocado is a fruit right? Those are, they have seeds and, you know, so those are the good oils, avocado oil, olive oil, coconut oil. Yep. And that's what, what I use too. Um, transition back to the movie, you're um, in the process of 
um, the editing process, you've got everything filmed pretty much, I, I think. And yeah. you're doing some crowdsourcing. So tell me about how people can help support your movement, your documentary. Yeah, we're on Indiegogo. We've been on Indiegogo for a long time. The, the, the campaign's closed, but it's still open. We still need people. If you just go to foodlies.org, you can find it out. But yeah, this is a completely community-powered film. We haven't taken on any outside investment. We're not working with any big companies or anything. It's just us doing it. It's, uh, you know, I, I think it preserves integrity of the film that we don't have any people telling us what to do. Right. We're not going to be swayed by anyone else. We're just making what we think is, you know, the, the good facts and balanced facts on all sides. So, so yeah, we're there. We're on Indiegogo and yeah, you can help. You can be in the credits. You can be a supporter. You can get a shirt. You can help us out. That's amazing. There's been so much corruption over the years and, you know, like the, the, you know, the tobacco industry supports a study that cigarettes don't cause lung cancer or, you know, this industry does, you know, somebody supports this and it comes out the way the findings come out the way or hmm. the person who sponsors it. So the fact that you're staying independent so you can put out what you truly believe is the truth um, is absolutely amazing. And I commend you for that and holding strong to it. And I'll do everything I can to help support you and in, in this process. So before I ask my last question, where can people find you online? Yeah, sapien.org. And that's my main site. You can find everything from there. And then just search Food Lies. Whatever social media you use, I'm there under Food Lies. So you'll find me. That's amazing. So my last question, and I ask this to every guest that I have, and it has to do with basically how people can live their best life today and, and, and longevity and it's, or with longevity if you could recommend only one thing a person could do that would extend their health span in the prime years of their life, what would be your recommendation? Mm. Well, I do have one thing. It's, it's my phrase is eat densely, move intensely. So that's what I believe in. I think eat less, move more is worthless. It's stupid advice. It means nothing. It's just telling you obvious facts or it's, I mean, it's kind of like saying, Oh, how do I get rich? Oh, spend less money than you make, right? It's, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Eat less, be more stupid. If you eat densely, move intensely, that is some actionable advice. If you eat nutrient dense food, this is everything we've talked about. And then the move intensely part is, I, I don't really, I'm not a big believer in this like steady state cardio, like going on hour jogs. I think hiking is awesome. And I would, I would call that intensely, you know, that's like getting out in nature. You're, you're doing an intense activity. I don't think going on a treadmill for an hour is an intense activity. So I like to, you know, throw weights around, do dumbbells, do kettlebells, do sprinting, you know, play a sport, you know, it, that, that's, that's, that's it. It's just eat densely, move intensely. That's absolutely amazing. That's great advice. I've never heard anybody put it that way. And I agree with you 100%, and I really um, appreciate your time to come on the show today. And um, I just want to say thank you, and I wish you all the luck with your with your documentary. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for letting me share my message, and uh, I appreciate it. All right. Take care. The statements expressed in this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Thank you for listening to The Modern Longevitarian. Please show your support by giving us a kind review and subscribing. You can also learn so much more about increasing the quality of your life today and the quantity of your life tomorrow at our website, 
modernlongevitarian.com. You can also join our private Facebook group at the link in the show notes. This episode is sponsored by Magnesium with Immune Boost by Electrolife. Stay hydrated and get yours today at electrolife.com forward slash shop. Come back next week for another amazing episode of the Modern Longevitarian.